When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yes, hello everyone and welcome back to the None But The Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz and as always I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. Flynn, what are you up to? I am quarantining, that's what I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's what everyone is up to. Yeah, it's getting a little old but uh, we gotta do what we gotta do, so. Gonna have to expand the range on what I ask you when we introduce the show from now on. Eh, possibly, possibly. You can ask me what I'm reading, what I'm listening to, what I'm watching. So, exactly. Yeah. Of course, well, you have a wider range in those areas than I do. But but I know what you're listening to these days. And what is that, Hal? <laughs> I believe you're listening to our new archive release, which we're going to discuss before we get to tonight's topic. And uh, we've got a special guest tonight, actually, which is exciting. It is. We are very, we're very excited uh, to have host our first guest tonight. So, but do you want to talk about the archive show first? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, I I like it, but then again, I like them all, as people pretty much know by now. A strong show, of, an excellent show from Gothenburg, July twenty eighth, two thousand twelve. Uh, the one right before the the Helsinki four hour show. I guess some people say his um, his voice was a little shy, and I and I can hear that. But you know, there are five strong highlights on this at this show that I'm very happy to to have officially released. Well, I'm biased, as you know, and I would have preferred the Paris July 5th, 2012 show from the same leg, which I felt was far and away the best rock concert I saw in the previous decade. But this is an outstanding listen. And I previously on our podcast, I had sort of downplayed Helsinki. I don't think that's a great listen. This is a far superior show, in my opinion. Now, I wasn't at either one of them, but just listening to them via the archive releases, this is a big show. He is a god in Sweden, and he was having fun with it at this show. Uh, I mean, where else is he, can he pull out Frankie and Lost in the Flood and where the bands are and still just have the audience again in the palm of his hand? Frankie, I think, is one of the best moments, perhaps, on certainly any of the Latter-day Archive releases. It's it's truly an amazing performance of the song. I, You and I were lucky to see it in Philadelphia a few months later, and just the arrangement he did in 2012 was was really quite gorgeous, or lovely as he called it. Yeah, it was very special, and it's one of those songs where after he does it like at this Gothenburg show, he goes, oh, we should do that one more often. And it's like, yeah, you should. <laughs> it's funny because I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, yes, that would be a good call. <laughs> yeah, but it seems like all the, all the songs he says that about, he... He never actually ends up doing, uh, you know, very often, if ever again, such as, oh, I don't know, Restless Nights. <laughs> and the version of Where the Bands Are, now that's a song that I never really actually thought they got right in the various times they played it earlier in the decade, or earlier in the reunion era, I should say. But here, especially with the way he started it slowed just himself, it was really highly effective. Yeah, I thought it worked really well, and, you know, not to you know, criticize him too much, but that was a solo that Clarence never really got, never really nailed during the, uh, the reunion and rising tours. And, uh, I I assume it's Jake on this, on this performance. So he, uh, 
he really finally he finally got the sax solo that, that the song needed. And the thing that comes through, I think, on the entire recording is just the energy of the night. As you say, he's like a god in Sweden. And really, the crowd is revved up and just ready to go. And, and it's one of those nights he he goes with it, you know, and that's why I think some of these surprises came. You also got the Born in the USA twofer, which really works well early in the show. And it's really a surprisingly good listen. Yes. And of course, we we'd be very remiss if we didn't mention Jungle Land uh, as the second to last song of the night. Yes. And uh, Jake, Jake nailed the solo. Um Got to give him credit for that one. I mean, I'm sure he must have been extremely nervous about doing it for the first time, or at least doing it for the first time in public. He he carried it very well, and I think the the audience was very appreciative and respective, and and I'm and I know Bruce was as well. And perfectly placed in the show, of course. Jungle Land, as we know traditionally, has showed up earlier in the encore, but here he left it to that very last moment. Maybe he was waiting to see if he was actually going to go through with it, and it just perfectly placed. And then they do the stadium breaker as they like to call it in Gothenburg to end the show. And that's a really fun version of twist and shout. Yes. Yes. It's a, just a great listen all the way through. That was a quick take on the archive show, which we both really liked as we just described, but we want to get to tonight's topic, which we think is a special one. We're going to be talking about the August 20th, 1981 show at the LA sports arena, a night for the Vietnam veterans, a benefit show that Bruce organized in order to support our forgotten veterans from that war. And there's just a lot of fascinating circumstances surrounding the show and the performance itself is really worth diving into. What do you think, Flynn? Oh, exactly. It is. Uh, it's a, it's very much a landmark show in a lot of ways for Bruce's for Bruce's entire career. And because it is a special show, and we re- wanted to do something a little extra with it tonight, we have our first special guest. So, Flynn, would you like to introduce him? Our special guest is is Jonathan Pond. Uh, he is the associate editor for Backstreet's Magazine. He was the chief editor back in the in the early to mid nineties, and he's still associate and. The reason I we ask him to join us, well, I, there are two reasons. One is that he's a huge, huge fan of, of this particular show. I mean, of course, you can say, well, who isn't? But Wait, are you talking uh, about our show or the actual show Bruce played? I'm talking about the, the Vets show. Oh, okay. I thought he was a huge fan of our show. I was very flattered. Well, yeah. He, I'm, sorry, I'm sure he's a huge fan of our show as well, but I'm talking about the Vets 81 show here. So he and I have spent like hours talking about the Vets 81 show. And other reason is that he's taken that that passion and he he wrote the 20th anniversary uh, look back at it for Backstreet's Magazine back in 2001. And so he interviewed Bobby Mueller for that and as well as just talking about it in general. So he's definitely an expert in it. So, Jonathan, this you're our first guest. So no pressure. <laughs> hey, guys, how and, you doing? And we welcome you and thank you for doing this. Yes, thank uh, you very much. Oh, it's a pleasure. And, and I am a fan of the podcast. I've listened since uh, the first episode. So I'm glad to be here. Very cool. So I guess the first question is, what makes this legendary? What makes the Vets 81 such a legendary show? There are so many shows when you listen to, to anything that Bruce has recorded on stage. Um, you know, you could start with the main point or Passaic or the last night at the Boston Music Hall in 77 the Stockholm shows in 81, but the Vets show was just one of those shows that had so much going for it, uh, in addition to being a great performance. It was such a, a pivotal moment 
for Bruce and his career. He'd come back from Europe with a, a shorter, tighter show. He'd really discovered a lot playing in front of a new audience for the first time. And it was really a moment where he really leveraged his music, I think, in a meaningful way uh, to do some good. It was a benefit show for the Vietnam Veterans of America. And it was just one of those moments where the magic happened. And I suppose if you were to listen to a recording of it, you might not know exactly like, wow, uh, this really is something extraordinary uh, until you know a lot of the drama that was going around around the time of the show. Yeah, this show is just extraordinary. And the passion in which they played is very clear, even on this fan recording. And I got to say, one of the reasons why I'm really interested to hear about your conversation with Bobby Muller, John, this is the first time Bruce really puts himself out there. Muller even says that in your piece. Bruce had done no nukes, but he said nothing about the cause. You know, there he just took the stage and played music, which, of course, they really did better than anyone. But here he put himself on the line and he made a very powerful statement that did change the fate of the Vietnam veterans in America. Muller told me that uh, his organization was basically on the rocks. It had hit the rocks, as he said, uh, a number of times. And that without Bruce coming in with the financial support that he did, uh, Bruce basically gave them the, the gate that night. It was $100,000, which was a lot of money in 1981. It's a lot of money today, but back then it was worth even more. And Mueller said that, you know, the, the organization probably would have folded uh, and th there would have been some reconciliation and some recognition of veterans and their movement, but it would not have had the coherence without Springsteen's support. So it was, it was really, uh, it was an act of kindness and conscientiousness, uh, but one of, uh, it saved the organization and allowed them to move forward for sure. And then certainly after Bruce did this show, a couple other artists, Pat Benatar and Charlie Daniels, as you, which I learned from your article, they did similar shows not too long after this one. No, it wasn't too long after, you know, and, and you kind of look back at the field uh, in, in 1981, who was popular. You know, I love Van Halen and, and Journey, uh, but <laughs> they weren't lining up to do benefit shows for, for uh, the Vietnam veterans of America. And uh, Bruce really, it, it was really the moment where, where the, the future of rock and roll became the present. And it was a moment, it was a pivotal moment. And so much happened afterward that I think was really tied to, to the performance. That was really one of the things that caught my eye about your piece that Mueller even says to you, as important as the $100,000 was, that was a considerable amount of money in 1981. He says really was more important that Bruce ended the silence of talking about these people and what had happened to them in Vietnam. And that was what really spurred the other artists to come in and do these things that Flynn just mentioned that you were talking about. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, and if you listen to what Mueller said before the show, I think certainly his remarks were, were sort of a, a moment where the, the fuse lit for that particular show. But if you listen to, to what he had to say about ending the silence around Vietnam, and then you read what he had to say in the, in the interview that we did, they had just come up against so much. It wasn't opposition exactly. It was just that the political establishment in this country that Mueller was was trying to work with just was not ready to have a discussion about Vietnam, about Vietnam veterans. There was a lot of shame around it, frankly. And, uh, you know, I think that was the other thing about Bruce stepping in when he did is that 
if the political establishment wasn't ready, here was Bruce Springsteen, who certainly was, and that, that really helped the organization move forward. Yeah, I was really struck in your piece when Mueller says to you that the older vets, the World War II vets, the Korean War veterans, they really looked down on the Vietnam veterans. It wasn't like they were all were all brothers and we want to take care of these guys. They really saw them as sort of anti-establishment troublemakers. And that was one of the reasons why the attempt to get help for the Vietnam veterans were was not happening. Yeah, there was definitely a generational disconnect. And Mueller did talk about that. And the the irony is that if, if you look at some of the, the, the people that were working with, with Mueller at the time, David Bonier, Leon Panetta, Al Gore, those are guys who eventually became sort of uh, establishment figures on their own as time went on. But back in 1981, there was just not really a, a willingness to, to sit down and embrace the the issue of helping Vietnam veterans. That was one of the things that struck me about your article as well, is that that I didn't know about was just that generational gap between the two and that the programs that had been created for the World War II veterans and the Korean War veterans, just those doors were not open to to the guys from Vietnam. Yeah, it was just a different time. And I think the needs were different. And, you know, Mueller talked about having to address what they had gone through in the war and uh, what their special needs were. Agent Orange, they needed a new GI Bill, and uh, they were just basically running up against a wall. The other thing was that, you know, some of the heavy hitters just kind of told them, they're like, listen, what you're doing here is, you know, we, we admire you and it's laudable, but, you know, Vietnam is just kind of a downer issue right now. When Mueller got on stage that night in Los Angeles and talked about ending the silence, he meant it. Yeah, one of the, about that is that, I'd always considered that silence just to be that these guys came back and they had they had problems. And so we weren't going to talk about those problems. But the real issue was just the entire country didn't want to really talk about them because it had been the war that that America lost. And so they were almost so talking about them was a reminder of of the way the country had fallen, at least militarily in in that war. And I don't know how true this is because I was only, you know, just a, a teenager at the time. But at the dawn of the Reagan era, there was there was a lot of mourning in America. This is even a little bit before that. But, you know, there were just things that you sort of celebrated and, and you felt good about. And at the dawn of the Reagan era, Vietnam was just not one of those things. <laughs> I think that that does a great job of setting up the feeling in the country what was going on with the movement, the the problems they were having as we arrive on August 20th, 1981. And now the show takes place in the sports arena in Los Angeles and we arrive on the night. So why don't we talk about the show and go through it pretty carefully? Let me interject there, Hal. Yeah. Bruce talked about going to the Venice, uh, Venice Beach VA Center like the day before. And he and he really talked about how that had that made an impact on him seeing guys. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to I, say to these guys. I actually had a. It's interesting because you know he told a very similar story in the Broadway show about yes. going to see the guys in Venice Beach. And he tell in that story he says he went with Ron Kovic. He says Ron asked him if he wanted to take a ride with him to Venice to the Venice Veterans Center to meet some Southern California vets. And he then tells the same story about how. 
his life seemed frivolous and the guys had such terrible trouble. And he he's telling the story in Broadway in relation to the Shoshone brothers. Right. And but I guess in the Mueller version, it's the day before the show. So it's, it's August 19th. Yes. So that's that's a little bit different because in the when he tells a story on Broadway, it's he's at, he's at the Sunset Marquee and. Ron Kovich is, is is by the pool and he comes over to introduce him. But he, di- he didn't say that was a particular like during the river tour or right before we got to L.A. So, yeah, I guess he must have just had two very similar experiences. If I remember correctly, I think the one with Kovic dates back to 78. But as we've been discussing here, he said it on the stage that he went the day before. So it's quite clear. And Mueller talks about that in, in my interview, too. He talks about that they'd gone uh, the day before. To, to Venice to meet some of the veterans. And Bruce talks about that on stage. And, and if you look at that photo of Bruce in, in the in the issue of Backstreets, we, in addition to doing uh, the Q&A with Bob Muller and uh, Jim Cullen wrote a, a really great piece. Uh, my friend Andrew Massimino did a another Q&A with Patty Griffin. It was a, a big package on this, this whole night for the Vietnam veteran. 14 pages worth. Yeah, exactly. But there's a photo of Bruce while he's making his comments. There's a Neil Preston photo and he had come out without his guitar. And and you could tell if you just look at this photo of him, he's sort of he's got one hand in his pocket and he's sort of leaning to the side while he's speaking. And he definitely looks like uh, uh, a little nervous. He does. He does look quite nervous in that picture. uh, And according to Mueller in your piece, Mueller says that Bruce didn't sleep the night before he was so nervous about having to make that speech. Yeah, and he said that by the time the show started, he wasn't wasn't sure if he was going to pull it off. And, of course, we know what happened. Now, the question kind of comes up, why did Bruce feel such such empathy with the, with the vets and, and why he really chose them to he chose them to really to get behind? You know, in, in the book that Bruce wrote, he talks about how he could deliver two things that the, the vets movement needed at that time. One was publicity and the other was financing. But fundamentally, it was an act of decency, and it was also sort of a way to to reconcile his own war experience or begin to do that. That's something you saw as the '80s went on, uh, with some of the some of the music he wrote. Certainly, his involvement with the veterans community, uh, things of that nature. Uh, certainly, the, the the great story he told when he played the river in 1985 that ended up on the live album. These were all ways to sort of reconcile the experience. He, of course, he didn't go to Vietnam, and 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 that's that's something we should all be enormously grateful for. A lot of people did, and this was just his own way to leverage what he was able to do in the time that he could do it. All right, that makes sense. So let's right. turn let's turn to the night. Obviously, the lights go down. Bruce comes out as you were just describing, John. He's nervous. He's got a microphone, no guitar in his hand, and he makes a speech, a very impassioned speech about why he they are there doing this on that evening. And one of the things that he says, which is really interesting, is that it's like the whole country turned into a dark alley where you see someone being assaulted late at night and you don't want to get involved and therefore you quickly move on. And then you sort of wonder what happened to that person and that he he makes the analogy that the whole country was that dark alley, that the Vietnam vets were the people being assaulted and everyone had just moved on. And that's why he wanted to be there to shed some light on this situation. 
No, it was a, it was a really moving speech, and I think that the the analogies uh, and the metaphors of the, the, the dark street are just they really fit that moment and what the vets had experienced, both in in terms of first of all going to war and then coming home and not getting the support that they needed. So yeah, and then and then Bruce introduced Bob Mueller, and he came on and gave his speech was which was also quite powerful as well. Oh, he was very passionate. And listening to it today, it just struck me what he says about the healing power of rock and roll. And let's not talk about it. Let's get down to it. And I know, John, he spoke to you about these themes. That was really something that they wanted to just, you know, launch into the show and and let the music speak and, and let it sort of wash over the audience and take them away on this ride, which Bruce eventually kicks off into with Who'll Stop the Rain. Yeah, it was really a moment. The remarkable thing about what Mueller did, and I forgot to ask him whether he, how much he prepared to go on stage, but he said Bruce told him two things. <laughs> he said, first of all, he said, if you think they're booing you, Bob, they're not. They're saying, Bruce. And he said, the other thing, he said, it's a rock and roll audience, so keep it short. But yeah, Mueller's speech was from the heart. It was a a bit of a history lesson. It really wrapped up with the fact that after they'd been shunned for so long by by the establishment, uh, that it did turn out to be rock and roll that was going to save the day. When they launch into Who'll Stop the Rain, there's a power and a passion to the performance that even for 1981, when the band was probably at its absolute peak, it's different than the other nights we hear. What do you guys think? I would certainly agree with that. Go, but go on, John. That performance of that song, there, it, it's always wonderful when when Bruce plays it. But there's that performance of the song, and then there are all the others. And I think for him to look around, uh, to be sleepless, to have had the experience of meeting the veterans. And really sort of being at this moment, it was just a a cathartic moment. And that was just the first, I mean, if you listen to the, we'll we'll get to the the next three songs, but if you listen to those four songs, the way they came out of the gate that night, particularly with that song, and it was a song that, you know, had been played a lot on on the Armed Forces radio network. Uh, The the veterans knew the song. Obviously, Bruce had been playing it for the last uh, uh, six or eight months. And uh, yeah, it just uh, really lit the place up that night. And certainly, with with Bruce looking at the side of the stage where there were where there were, where they had made uh, benches, I guess, for some of the Vietnam vets from the from the veteran centers to see them right there on stage, that must have been it. It brought him to that other level. Uh, that's that's an important point we should make for everyone that, that Bruce has, uh, had instructed his crew to build risers right alongside the stage for for vets. So uh, they could be elevated basically that night and, and have a vantage point. And, and Mueller talked about that being sort of a celebration for those people. Oh, it must have been incredible, both for the band and for the veterans who are experiencing that. And again, when you listen to the performance, I know, John, you just mentioned the first three songs and it is the truth. I mean, the version of Prove It All Night that follows Who Will Stop the Rain, it's incredibly impassioned. I mean, the way Bruce is singing uh, especially the if drift, if dreams came true, wouldn't that be nice? First, it's it, he is putting his heart into it in a way. I mean, that's a, a song that obviously he plays the hell out of 
all the time. But just on that night, you could tell he was giving it like that extra 20%. And that continued into Ties That Bind, which, of course, is very thematic for the moment. Yeah, and I also wondered, just listening to the first three songs, you know, how how hard it was for him to 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 keep it together, given everything that had happened, given that moment, given his own experience with the war. There's just something in his voice that, to me, makes him sound like a man on the razor's edge. And he just, he really kept it together, but there's just so much power and and passion and emotion coming from from him on on those first three songs and then you get to darkness on the edge of town (laughs) well and and if you connect if i'm sorry flynn go ahead that one was really he was really pushing it there i mean it's almost as if it were we're glad his voice survived just that one song it's a powerful version for sure Well, and, best. and and I think you're you're talking about the emotion, John, putting together some of the pieces we just discussed a little earlier. And even if we bring in the story he tells in Broadway about meeting Kovic and and then going to the vet centers, obviously, and and the guilt that he may, he may have had about not having gone, and and now he's performing on stage, and these guys who are broken, many of them, and and he talked about that, and they're, he's put them right on the stage, and they're right there literally feet from him i mean it must have just been almost overwhelming for him and he responded the way he knew how yeah i think that's a really important point that he had one job to do that night uh which was to rock everyone and that's what he was gonna do one thing listening to those first to the opening four songs there is you wonder if he came out with too much emotion and you, you know you you blow it all in the first first quarter if of a if of a football game as an example but that was not the case well, I've always said he could have walked off after those first four songs and called it a night. Uh, but you're right. Uh, but as the show went on, as we know, uh, it had so much drama and so much meaning. And, uh, you know, and the other thing, it was it was such a new show. You know, if you'd seen Bruce at the sports arena in October or November of 1980, and then you saw him on this night, it was, you know, there were six or seven different songs the arrangements were different. The raps were different. It was a completely different experience. Well, and there's also a lot of covers and sort of oddities in this set that weren't there necessarily the year before. You've got Johnny Bye Bye. You've got Joel A. Blown. Obviously, he did Ballad of Easy Rider, which we're going to get to, which, of course, was specific for this evening. But there's a lot of stuff in the show that isn't necessarily known by the fans either. Trap. Right. Trap. Trap. Yes, another one. Yeah. yeah. Sure. But the show is so powerful, you can hear the response of the crowd on the recording. It's explosive. Well, maybe people came to the show thinking that it was going to be you know, a benefit show or something. And then the drama, as it unfolded, sort of added to the response and the passion and the experience that the, the audience encountered. And certainly when he went into Johnny Bye Bye, he talked about about Elvis and about his usual spiel about Elvis, about how someone who had so much to give had lost so much of himself. And you can almost feel like Bruce was trying to, was going for the metaphor that of Elvis as America and in terms of what it it had gone through in terms of these guys. That really was poignant on that night because you know it's taking on a dual meaning beyond what he normally said about Elvis. And Elvis himself was just really a tragic figure at that point that he had this incredibly talented person had slipped away as Bruce described it. That version that night, it was, it was really about innocence lost. Yeah, good one. You know, and, and Bruce said something when he was setting up the song, he said, 
he remembered seeing Elvis on the Ed Sullivan show and he turned to his mother and he said, I want to be just like that. And then he said he grew up and he didn't want to be like that anymore. And you have to wonder, you know, was that a moment where there was sort of the before and the after? This was the after. Yeah, I totally agree with what you just said, John. And I think he even said it there in the intro to the song on that night, you know, reflecting on how Elvis had so much. And yet in the end, he really lost a lot of his will to live and that all those dreams, they don't mean anything unless you're strong enough to fight for them. And I think he was speaking for the vets. He was speaking on behalf of himself because I think you're right. He didn't want to turn out like Elvis and he didn't want that to be the story that was written about him at the end. And, and fortunately we know now 40 years later, of course it hasn't been written that way. Yeah. And I think he also didn't want that for his audience. He was accustomed to seeing so many young faces when he would come out every night. And, you know, here he is back at the sports arena after having gone to Europe. Now he's talking about reading history books, right? (laughs) He's, he's telling people like, listen, this happened once it could happen again. Here's what you need to know. Here are the books that can help you. Here's the roadmap. Here's what happened to my father. Here's what didn't happen to me. Why didn't it happen to me? You know, why did it happen to some people? There was so much resonance in this evening that helps make it the show that it is. That arrangement of Johnny Bye Bye was unique to that tour. And I think that even this version, this performance of it was probably the best one from from that tour. Am Am I wrong on that? Not in my book. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's very compelling. I mean, I yeah. I can't say I've compared every version of Johnny Bye Bye from 1981, but uh, you know, again, listening to this this morning, it's very very powerful. And then, of course, it's followed by Independence Day, which is not a coincidence. It's not a- another song about fathers and sons trying to break the cycle. And then on the he actually ex, ex, uh, expounds on that on the, when he introducing Trapped when he really talked about that's when he talked about the history books and. And the patterns and the cycles that that fathers and sons go through, and you know, you you end up you end up trapped. I think what you're getting at, Flynn, is it was not a Van Halen show. No, it was not. <laughs> there was no David Lee Roth leg kicks going on on this evening. No, sir. No, no, it's not. He was Bruce was going serious here, and he and talking about they probably in a way. And of talking about being trapped in a way and not in a relationship, but being trapped and and how how you end up in the country and and you end up becoming a victim without even really realizing it. Well, and I think that's an important point. And based on what we were just talking about with the previous three songs, you had Darkness, you had Johnny Bye Bye, you had Independence Day, and now he's doing Trapped. And I think you're right. It's not in this context a relationship song. It's more literal about being trapped. And then that's when he had the he has the great line about written on the wall. If I if I remember correctly, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's in the intro to that, right? And that at that point, the wall wasn't the wall in D.C. hadn't been built yet, so he was kind of uh, you know a premonition of that. I hadn't even thought of that. That's right. The wall came in the mid '80s at some point, Did right? It not don't know exactly when, but uh, yeah, he wanted to talk about uh, getting breaking that cycle and learning more about who you are and where you came from and breaking out basically i just looked it up the vietnam wall was established november 13th 1982 so it's possible it was in the planning stages already by the time bruce took the stage there we'd have to look a little bit more into the history but it was it was completed and opened at that time 
Yeah. All right. All right. So it wasn't for another year, another year. Yeah. And again, this is one of the, I mean, this is a minor point to make in such a great show, but the pacing of the show was just, was just so perfect to going from the, the seriousness of independence day taught and then segueing into, into being trapped. And then you had the release of two hearts. Yeah. I think in particular, the first set here is really brilliantly put together and the sequence of songs Flynn that you just mentioned which then lead into two hearts and out in the street and then that's followed by promised land I think it just really works well in the mindset of what was going on and the fact that the veterans were there and on the stage and I, I think out in the street serves as also after two hearts as a release and a celebration here before we get into promised land which of course is I think one of the central tenants of Bruce's entire catalog. The Promised Land is probably one of the most important songs he's he's ever written, and it's still the way he sang it that night with the, with the guys next next to him. Uh, he's, he, Bruce did dedicate Promised Land, you know, twenty some odd years later to to basically the next generation of of, of war heroes. And after the Promised Land, then he arrives at the river. Now there's something going on in the river. And John, do you know? Because something takes place during the performance of the river, which is, I mean, just the emotion. We were talking about some of the songs earlier. Here, I think it hits a peak for the show. And there's something that's going on where Bruce stops singing. Of course, Flynn and I weren't there. I know you weren't either. He seems to lose himself. After the line, for my 19th birthday, I got a union card and a wedding coat. He goes silent and the band continues playing and then he does pick up at the appropriate spot later on. But there's just there's a gap where he's not singing and that's not a, a case where he's having the audience sing. He definitely something happened. Do, do you know, John, what happened there? Something happened and it is a mystery. There's been some people have said, oh, he he stopped to shake someone's hand. And I said, well, I. I don't think I recall him really stopping singing ever before. He has shaken hands during the middle of a song, uh, probably not during the river. Uh, but it does sound to me like he he had to pause for a second to to compose himself, and he he does drop part of that verse. And I think that's one of the one of the high points of the show in terms of showing how important it was and how how high the emotion was going, as you as you said, Hal. I would find it hard to believe, of course, we weren't there, but to think that in, in the middle of that song, which is obviously a very important song also in the Springsteen catalog, especially in this context, that he would just stop singing to shake someone's hand, that to me doesn't seem to be likely. And, and you can hear it. You can hear that suddenly he seems to be overcome with emotion or something. That's what it sounds like to me. So I was fascinated by that listening to it again, just because Bruce, of course, is so at this point experienced as a performer to think that that level of emotion and, and that sort of power is coming over him. It really, I think, is a testament to how important the night was and, and what was going on here at the sports arena. Yeah, I don't buy the handshake thing either. And I, I think if you look at the line that he he blocks, it's really sort of a pivotal moment in that song. And you could imagine some other real life character coming to that point. And maybe that's what happened where, you know, the poetry and real life sort of collided. And it, it took took the guy who wrote it himself a second to recover from from that. And certainly talk about the about his 19th birthday. Well, I mean, that was, as we know, from Paul Hardcastle's 85 hit 19, 
that was the average age of the of the guy in Vietnam. So that's a good point. Oh, so yeah, he, that's a really good point. Yeah. So so he was so that line was about those guys and what their lives could have been in some way. Right. Well, that yeah. that makes a lot of sense. I mean, not to put ourselves in his head, but as Flynn points out, we do that often. But <laughs> he's standing on the he's standing on the stage singing these words and the, and the veterans are there. And we know he has this guilt because he didn't go. He describes that later. And he looks over and these guys are in wheelchairs and, and they're all the troubles that he saw that they have. You know, and that must have been an incredibly powerful thing for him to experience because he could have been one of those guys. I mean, it's it's right there in the song. Yeah, from going from those first four songs all the way at the beginning of the show, singing at full pitch for, for those first full songs, like a rocket, and then coming to that point in the river and having to come to a dead stop really sort of tells me what the night was all about. And then very, very I, important for him, to, for him to get this right, too. Yeah. And then from there, I mean, he starts to bring the first set to a close with the he had been traditionally doing this land as your land. And he did it again on this night. The, the way he set that one up, Hal, for me is really important because he tells a story of being in France, uh, again, going back to the pivotal European tour that he had just completed in the spring. And he said that somebody in France asked him how he could sing a song that he knew was not true. And I thought, that's just a remarkable thing to disclose, number one. You know, This Land is Your Land is such a complex song, and most of the verses are... The campfire verses differ from from the, the ones that, that don't get sung. Yeah, they're quite different in tone. Yeah, I think you made an excellent point there, John. I mean, his intro before This Land is Your Land, talking about that a dream, even if it gets stepped on or run over, it doesn't die. And then he says, this is for you guys. Presumably that's for the vets he's talking to. I don't think he's talking to the general crowd there. Is that what you guys took from that? Absolutely. Sounds like it to me. Yeah. Yeah. So he's talking about dreams that no matter how much incoming you may take uh, to use the literal Vietnam experience, those dreams don't die, that you keep on going and you find yourself. And that's what he was taking from this land is your land. And, and I think that's how he was presenting it in the show. I'm going to make the, the earlier comparison to, to, to talk about Elvis. I mean, letting the best of yourself slip away. You have to hold on to your idealism no matter what. You have a promise. You have this is what your country is supposed to be or what this person's supposed to be. And yeah, we're, you're going to get knocked down. You're going to things are going to happen that aren't in your favor, but you got to keep striving to it to achieve that ideal. After This Land is Your Land, he brings the set to a close with Badlands and Thunder Road, two of the traditional closers for the first set at that time. And then he he takes a break. And obviously, we don't know how long the break was, but he comes back out. I mean, what do you guys think? I think the second set really takes on quite a different tone in a certain way from the first set, where the first set was very, very dedicated to this theme of the evening. The second set is really a lot more about release, especially those first five songs. Well, what I what I would say is that it's whereas the, the first part of the show had some some different stuff, or at least he talked about some different things than he that he normally did. The second set is pretty much uh, a standard second set for for summer of '81. Yeah, that's true too. You know, but of course, that doesn't mean these were not. Uh, he wasn't putting more more emotion into those songs. I mean, you know, Sherry Darling seemed to have a little bit more fl uh, vocal fluctuation and 
And certainly uh, I thought racing in the street was just listening today. I was just I was like, this is one of the better ones and it doesn't get that much respect. Well, there was also a break in Cadillac Ranch where there's a lot different. He's doing like different guitar stuff than he normally did at that time or at any other time that I've heard. Do you know what I'm talking about there? That break in Cadillac Ranch, which in the middle of the song, which really is pretty unique, I think, to this evening. Yeah, there that version of Cadillac Ranch, he, he did do that guitar break a couple of other times, but it was not a frequent occurrence. And it was also, uh, I think he counted in. I don't think there was the long drum intro that that usually uh, set the song up. I think he just went right into it. But I think you guys are right. You know, the first set was this studious, serious affair. It was incredibly well-performed. It was very meaningful. And I think in the second set, it was, ju- it was just time to party. It was just time to rock and roll and, and really celebrate and put the history books away and not talk about being trapped. It was just time to, to turn up the volume and dance. Well, and if you even reflect back on what Mueller told you about the advice Bruce gave him, that it was a rock and roll audience, keep it short. In a way, you would think that Bruce was also thinking the same thing. Okay, I'm going to tell this story and it's going to be very emotional. But then at a certain point, especially after I go and take a break and we come back, we got to get to doing what we are normally doing, which is rock in the house. And even though the first set I do think rocked, it did not rock in the way that we traditionally associate with Bruce because there was this heavy emotional undertone to the whole thing, which I think was really unique for this evening. Would you, would you guys agree with that? Yes. Yeah. I, yes. Yeah. I, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, we have songs like two hearts and out in the street, which, you know, normally, I mean, he plays, he played them on almost every show on the tour, but this, but this show, it, obviously they had, as you said, much deeper, darker undercurrents. Whereas when you get to the second set, There are no more darker undercurrents. It's just rock and roll. Yeah, Flynn, I think you're 100% on target. I mean, the first five songs in particular, it's really an incredible run of of rock and roll. Now, of course, that's what they were doing on the 8081 tour anyway. But here, it seems like he knew that it's almost like he wanted to reward the audience. He was like, hey, this audience sat through this incredibly powerful narrative which I think was a little challenging. And and obviously you've got Vietnam veterans on the stage. It's certainly putting a feel to the show that you wouldn't normally have at a Springsteen show. And here he came out and he gave everyone the release that they needed. Right. Well, I think the, that word you use at the end, the release, I mean, that is, that's a major part of these Springsteen, sh- of all Springsteen shows. You have the intensity and then you have the release. And each time he goes more intense, bigger release, more intense, bigger release. And that's, the whole first set was just was pr- was pretty intense. So you got a one heck of a release with those first five songs of the second set. I will say that listening to it, "Wreck on the Highway" did seem particularly spiritual on this evening, uh, the way it was performed. You know, I, obviously they were locked in as we're discussing, so that's probably not a surprise. But it did seem to have a very spiritual component, especially as he got to the end. It also goes back to what he said at the beginning of the show, where you see someone and something happens, how do you respond? And to me, Wreck on the Highway is one of those songs that, that sort of explores that very idea. Yeah, it is kind of interesting when you when you make that comparison, which I hadn't made before, about a wreck on the highway. That I mean, the person is literally going by a wreck on the highway. 
which is very similar to to walking by an assault in a back alley on the street. So yeah, that's a great point. You know, very very valid. And right, I mean, Wreck on the Highway was a, I guess it was a pseudo regular at that part of the tour. I mean, certainly wasn't an every nighter, but I'm yeah, I'm sure it was not a coincidence that he played it. Yeah, and the the first set, second set thing. You know, when when Bruce made the river, I think just by dint of having a double record, uh, he wanted to have more characters, more experiences. And you don't always get, you know, just the party set. You have to have the serious set. So it's it's no surprise to me that this show happened uh, when it did, 1981. And then then you have Racing the Street, which I already which I already commented that I thought it was kind of it's been overlooked in terms of the Racing in the Street history. I think it's this one was certainly a very moving one, and I you know I know they're all moving, but this one, but considering the night, I thought it it moved a little bit more. I always like hearing whenever he plays it in Los Angeles because everyone cheers at that line <laughs> that mentions L.A. And, you know, yeah. you always sort of wait for it. And uh, it was a respectful cheer that night. And then and then, of course, it's uh, it's kind of back to back to a party. I mean, I know Candy's Room ain't exactly a, a I party don't know whose song. idea of a party that is, but OK. <laughs> Should well, have been the first We're, we're, we're going to have to explore that later. That's right. So, yeah. So Candy's Room is a starts the party it starts it gets lifts the mood back up i mean certainly with his guitar and the the searing guitar solo at, at the middle of it and then the way he uh he segued the ending guitar of Kenny's room into the opening guitar of ramrod i always love that and of course that was that a good was, pairing yeah yeah and and the, and those songs i mean the ramrod rosalita ending to the set i think was pretty common at this point yes it was that's but, actually Kenny's room was pretty common too if i yeah. if memory serves and the performance here are all stellar. I mean, the, even in Rosalita, he has a lot of fun with the intros, as he as he often did at that time. Again, it's just the continuation of of a top tier E Street Band performance through those songs, which were performed regularly on that tour. Right, and then we get to the encore and the opening song for the encore, Jungle Land, which was again pretty standard for that uh, on that tour, actually for the whole tour. It's a great version of Jungle Land too, and in fact, a friend of mine who was at the show. That was his takeaway song. He said that the Jungle Land, you know, for all of everything that had gone on that night, that that performance of that song was was the the one that stands out all these years later. Yeah, I agree. Jungle Land sounds so powerful on the recording. And of course, even on an average night, it's one of those songs that just takes hold of an arena. But you think about the context here and the way the song ends, try to make an honest stand, but they wind up wounded and not even dead. That seems really on target for the night. Oh wow, that's a that's a really that's really interesting. I never put that together before. Oh, thanks. I actually just thought of it. And then, of course, the uh, the next song though is the big one off the Ballad of Easy Rider, a cover of the Bird song. Could you could one of you enlighten me as the significance of this particular song for the for the vets? Ballad of Easy Rider was a song that Bruce worked up at intermission. I think uh, he wanted a healing type of song to cap off the evening. In fact, I think that's what John Landau told. Robert Hilburn, uh, who wrote about it in the L.A. Times. You know, it's a song that Roger McGuinn wrote and Bob Dylan uh, had some involvement. And uh, it was just a beautiful sort of sort of a soar, gently soaring number uh, that that really um, sent everyone out into the night on the right note. God, that's well, so fascinating what you just said about him working it up at the intermission, because if you think about what we were saying about the first set and how powerful it was and the emotion and he focused. must have got yeah he must have gone back 
stage and gone to his dressing room and obviously realizing that he must have felt like there was something, a piece that he needed, as you described it as a healing song. It's unbelievable because this is a perfect song for the occasion if he thought about it on the fly. It's, it, I mean, it just, I think it just shows how incredible Bruce is at rising to a particular moment. Yeah, you think about every, everyone getting out of the shower to do, a, to do an extra encore. It's like, well, no, you're getting out of the shower at intermission to learn a song for the encore, to work it up. Yeah, everyone got their money's worth that night in more ways than one. Oh, yeah. Did they ever get their money's worth on this night? And I, I think that, I mean, just looking at the song and the words, take me from this road to some other town. Well, the line before that, flow, river, flow, let your waters wash down. Take me from this road to some other town. It is such a perfect song about healing. And I think that in in the context of what had come earlier, it really is a perfect selection. And, you know, again, I mean, just really remarkable if he did come up with it on the fly as an idea and it wasn't something he had been thinking about leading up to the show it's pretty amazing it always struck me as a very sad song actually about somebody being free and not really being too free if that makes any sense unconnected from from society that's that's been always been my take of it well, I was researching some history of the song today, and I, and I saw that David Frick of Rolling Stone once described it as the weary blues and dashed expectations of a decade's worth of social insurrection. So, uh, you know, it sounds like the song was written in the face of the very powerful events, the war, the, 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 the protests that went on, stuff like the 68th Democratic Convention in Chicago, and that you know, that the expectations of all of those protests and stuff never really came to fruition. And and that's reflected in the song. So I think perhaps, Flynn, what you're saying is true, because it maybe the person is not fully connected to society because they tried to change society and, and the changes didn't occur in the way they were hoping. As I read what Frick is saying, John, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's redemption. Flow, river, flow, flow to the sea. You know, what happens when you get to the sea? You complete the cycle. And that's maybe, maybe that was the, the metaphor to, to sort of close the show. It's like, hang on, everyone, try to get there. Okay. But of course, the show is not over. And from there, they launch into Born to Run, the summational song at this point of Bruce's career. And I got to say, this version, much like a lot of the stuff that was played in the first set, it's like a rocket ship was launched into the stratosphere. I mean, it's out of control. Yeah, it's really sort of riding the rails again. Uh, it, it's a very fast version of the song. They're playing it, I think, at a, at a little bit of a, a faster clip. And uh, I think Bruce trips up on the words, uh, and he's easily forgiven for that. I'm surprised he was uh, able to, to hang on at such a such a fast clip for that song, something they've played a million times. And and here they are again. It's like they're coming out of the shoot, like it's an opening song. I guess every every so often, uh, even something to do every night it takes on takes on extra special meaning. Well, that's, I think it's that's yeah. why we listen. <laughs> that's not only is that why we listen. That's you know that's that's the drama here of this particular show is that all of these songs are being presented. I think e even Born to Run in a slightly different context than they normally were at the time. And that's what we keep talking about, how this sort of emotion, I think, overcame Bruce in a way, but he was able to keep going and he channeled it into the performance. I mean, is that what you guys take away from it? Certainly the line, someday we're going to get to that place where we really want to go and we'll walk in the sun, uh, certainly applies to those guys. 
it's a summational song in so many ways. And, and to hear Bruce tell it later on that he heard so much of his earlier music when he would play the song. And I'm sure on a night like this, this one, August 20th, it echoed even more. And then, of course, after Born to Run, we get to the Detroit medley. And uh, this night has to be considered one of the better ones. You got the trio of Shake, You Can't Sit Down, and Sweet Soul Music. and uh, Great wow. additions, right. Oh, this is without question. I was listening to this today. It's it's such a stunning version of the song that, again, it's just capping off everything we've talked about about the rest of the evening. The extra oomph and the extra power and, and just the extra mile they're going in each of these songs, it's again reflected here. And I don't even know how they were still standing at this point. Uh, the audience must have been exhausted. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Now, think about the range you had a Woody Guthrie song, a John Fogarty song, the stacks. You had all these different covers and then you had all the original music. I mean, it just showed an incredible range uh, that he was, he was capable of at, at that stage. Oh yeah, for, for sure. And it's like, I was also saying in regards to the show he was presenting to the audience and you were making the point how different this was different. This was from the fall of 1980 shows there's so much here that the audience would have been unfamiliar with, but it's just a testament to how great he was that the audience stuck with it. And, and there's never a moment that you can tell where the audience is losing attention or bored or anything like that. Every moment they're hanging on every note of every song. And they're too busy dancing. And I was going to say that even applies to, to Wreck on the Highway and This Land is Your Land, which unfortunately could not be said of 2016 yeah well i think audiences in general have changed of course i I, correct me if i'm wrong there were no cell phones in the audience (laughs) in 1981 no there were not the cinder block ones no not even those john (laughs) but yeah they uh that was when bruce was at at his highest powers let's 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 be honest here and he was i I think it was also it was a more dedicated audience back then it was sort of you know, even though he'd had a top 10 success with, with Hungry Heart and The River had sold probably close to 2 million copies by that point, he was still fundamentally kind of a, you know, not exactly a cult artist, but the people who came to see him, sure, there were a lot of first timers on that tour, but the command of the audience that he had, and that's something that, that Pete Townsend once talked about, he said, the fact that, especially on The River Tour, that, 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 the way Bruce and the material sort of demanded that attention and that buy-in from the audience was particularly of note because it was going on in in sports arenas rather than smaller venues. Yeah, it's really, I mean, an amazing testament to what he was capable of doing. And then this show ends with another stellar version, another cover, a cover he's done a million times. I don't know if he's ever done it better than this, but you know, he sends the audience home with twist and shout. And I think after everything that has come before, it's it's the perfect closer for this evening. Oh, exactly. I, I mean, I assume everyone in that arena was just sweating their ass off and not quite ready to go home yet, but uh, certainly feeling those three hours of music they had just seen. Hey, and there were five more nights after this. <laughs> it's, it's amazing when you think, think that this was that, the yeah. first night, not the last night. Right. Yeah, that is pretty. That pretty. That's pretty impressive, you know, considering what we've seen over the last twenty years. Yeah, if only there was a better quality tape. But as uh, that's, we've already discussed that one before, and I unfortunately don't think we have any more news in, in that regard. But 
Well, hopefully, I mean, fingers crossed, one day they're going to find that they at least, you know, have something somewhere, any sort of professional quality of this show, and they'll get it out. Well, I was I was listening to it today. I The version that I was listening to was one I put together back in 2001, I guess it was, where there was, I had gotten a, a soundboard of the first, I guess, 45 minutes worth, and it sounded better to me today than I remembered it sounding at the time. And so I'm wondering... You know, if they could just find that, find the rest of that soundboard and they could really clean it up. I mean, there was that great version of darkness that that circulated from this show. Right, Jonathan? Yeah, uh, it it circulated pretty far and wide. And it 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 sounds like a two track stereo soundboard to me. And uh, I share your sentiment that if, if somehow, whether it's the first 45 minutes or the entire show, preferably the latter, that they could find it clean it up and put it out right yeah. and, and again right. if, if there are any dropouts i mean i remember there are some dropouts during i guess who'll stop the rain or prove it or ties one of, one of the early songs they can easily use an audience tape and to patch it in just like they've they've had in the done in the past and well, just it's just the fact that that the version of darkness that we were talking about was done by it was done just you know by by a fan by someone who doesn't have say you know access to a full studio worth of equipment now john we have discussed this before i mean we know all the available evidence or lack thereof there <laughs> you agree there's nothing to indicate this show was captured by multi-track that we're aware of i'm not aware of any multi-track recording that went on in 1981 in los angeles if we had a time machine, God, <laughs> I, I would go back and do it. Well, well heck, be, if, we, if we had a time machine, just let's go back and tell them to keep recording on, on some kind of two track from the board. So anything well, you know, would, would be good. Yeah, well, this is, is just such an important show. I, I, obviously, it's probably wishful thinking. It, it may not ever happen. It probably won't happen. But if they could somehow get this show out, even in a lesser quality, I think the fans will understand if that were to be the case. This one, the bottom line, there are a couple of shows in his career that they obviously seem not to have multi-tracks for that just are so important that they should be a part of the archive series, and hopefully they'll be able to make it happen. But to this point, how how long has the archive series been going on, Flint? Seven years uh, now? Well, since the end of 2014. Okay, so that's six what, years, five, yeah. Five and a half, so. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, they can never consider releasing two tracks again like they did with the Albany and Rochester from 77. Maybe we, we have a chance, but, of course, then there's just the fact that, you know, they don't have it, they don't have it, and we're just SOL. Yeah, so, but at least we've got a great document. I actually also thought it sounded a lot better than I remembered. It had been a while since I had listened to the show at all, much less the entire show. And it, it really is, considering the importance of the show, the sound quality is not that big a deal. Obviously, you'd like it to be better, but it's very listenable. It's a good audience recording for sure. And and I think the important thing as I stand here, I, I'm thinking about the tapers. We would not be talking about this show at all if it weren't for at least two people who got into the arena that night with taping equipment, not for any ulterior motive, but because they wanted to preserve history and I can't think of a more deserving night that needed to be recorded in Bruce Springsteen's career than this one. So hats off to the tapers. Exactly. Yeah. Thank thank you to them. I mean, without them, a lot we wouldn't be able to hear a lot of this music, or I mean, most of it. So 
So yeah, thank you. If you were if you ever taped a show, thank you. And I think as we come to the end here, we should say thank you very much to John. We have loved having you as our first guest. We hope you've had some fun with this. And I think it's been a really illuminating discussion. Uh, hopefully people will agree with that. Yes. Thank you for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. It was good to be here and uh, continued success with the podcast. Thank you thank very you. much. We appreciate it. And thanks to you all bet. the support but that you and Chris have given us. It means a lot. No worries. It's all good. And uh, we enjoy what you do. Thank you very much. Once again, that was John Pont, associate editor of Backstreet's Magazine. And Flynn, I, he did a great job. Oh, I thought so, too. I, that was a lot of fun. We may have to have him back. We'll find another topic. <laughs> well, he's uh, if we ever talk about Oakland 84, he's he, he's our guy. Oh, OK. So. All right. Well, again, thanks to John Pont. And I think that pretty much wraps up our show for this evening. As always, let's just close with a little bit of business. None but the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe to the podcast on either Apple Podcasts or any platform that you prefer. And we can be found on the web at nonebutthebravepodcast.com and on Twitter at NBTB Podcast. So thanks again to Jonathan Font for joining us. So for, uh, for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McClain saying thank you for listening and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob Podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.